Hey everyone, Sophie here with a cold open for this episode. Just wanted to give you guys a little update on where we're at with the podcast and explain maybe why some of the episodes are taking so long. So most of you probably already know that Raymond is a master's student and I work full-time and I have some other random part-time jobs on the side and I'm also planning a wedding. So things right now are really pretty busy. We love making this show and we never want to stop making this show, but right now our schedules definitely aren't letting us make it as often as we would like to or as we were before. So for the foreseeable future, we're going to be releasing episodes about once a month and we'd like to go back to the bi-weekly schedule at some point in the future, but for right now that's what our release schedule is going to look like. Please keep sending us your thoughts, your comments, your questions. We love hearing from all of you and you're the reason we keep going. So thanks so much for listening and for sticking with us. On to the episode. The first time I read these last three pages, I stared at the book with my mouth open for a few seconds and promptly turned back three pages and read them again because I was like, there's no way that's what just happened. (laughs) How do I know, murmured Dorian Gray, sipping some pale yellow wine from a delicate gold beaded bubble of Venetian glass and looking (laughs) dreadfully bored. (laughs) You can't hide the real world in art because sooner or later it's going to come out. There are no new words under the sun. Unreliable Narrators, a podcast where we discuss media, literature, and the arts, and how they relate to Christ, the self, and the world. I'm Sophie Klomperens. And I'm Raymond Dokapil. And we are back in the same recording studio for the first time in months. Uh, literally months. Yeah. It feels good to be back, not on Zoom. I mean, I don't know if it feels great, because this is kind of like a mess in here. That's why we do podcasts and not, like, videos. That's why we're not YouTubers, because we can't make things look aesthetically pleasing. Yeah. Um, Oscar Wilde would really uh, gag if he saw our recording studio right now. Yeah. And uh, because, on that note, what are we talking about today, Sophie? The picture of Dorian Gray. Oh, no way. How timely. (laughs) How appropriate. Uh. Yeah, so The Picture of Dorian Gray, an 1890 novel by Oscar Wilde, it originally was a lot gayer than the version that most people read. Um, and, but, well, you got to explain, because Oscar Wilde was a homosexual, so... Yes, I, yes. I mean, he wasn't being gay, ironically. I no, guess. no, he... This was uh, in the Victorian time, um, Victorian sensibilities, obviously, and morality... Being gay, homosexuality was not uh, super well. It was it was frowned upon mm-hmm. um, because it was a very Christian society, and so uh, Oscar Wilde's well, culturally Christian society, right, yeah. right. And so Oscar Wilde's first uh, version of the text had too much homoerotic subtext, and so people were upset about that, and so. He was forced to censor a lot of it. Um, so actually, when you pick up a copy of The Picture of Dorian Gray, if you're thinking about reading it, or if you've, maybe you've already read it, but if you're thinking about reading it, there are two copies you can get. You can get the copy that's the original copy before it was censored, or you can get the post-censorship copy. Um, post-censorship is actually probably better, not even because there's nothing, there's nothing graphic or really too bad in the first version, but 
it's just too long. <laughs> There's too much extra stuff that isn't super necessary. So, uh, the you mean in the censored one or the uncensored? The uncensored is too oh. long. Um, I think, and so censored is better, even if it's just for the sake of having uh, less extraneous stuff. Well, you know, I I guess I probably am, am reading, have just read the, the censored one then because this doesn't seem super long to me. Yeah, no, that would be the uncensored yeah, one probably. Yeah, but then... Or sorry, I, the censored one. Yeah, but then I was reading it and I'd be like, this seems pretty homosexual to me, so I don't know what you're, what you're talking about, about this being censored. I mean, so, I mean, there was a premise of the story we could talk about. The premise of the story, I think, is... Is uh it, once you know that Oscar Wilde uh, uh had uh, homosexual relationships, then you kind of can see it. I mean, there's not really, it's not really a way to hide that. It's kind of the premise of the whole premise of the story. Yeah. Well, no matter what, um, no matter, no matter whether you're reading the censored copy or the uncensored copy, um, there are very clearly, as long as you know that going in the descriptions of the relationships between the main characters. So the relationship between Dorian and uh, Basil, or Dorian and Lord Henry, those relationships are very clearly... They talk a lot about Dorian's appearance and um, how good he looks, like how hot he is. So it's not super subtextual, um, even in the censored copy. Yes, it becomes to the point of being religious and almost like uh, a form of worship. Um, right, which makes sense for a book that is effectively, in some sense, about hedonism. Yeah, yeah. So with those are the main characters. We've got Dorian Gray, we've got uh, Basil Howard, and, and Lord Henry. Um, and so the basic premise of the book is Basil Howard is a painter. Uh, Dorian Gray is a subject. So I, I don't know how old Basil Howard is, but Dorian Gray is in his, I guess, early 20s, I mm-hmm. suppose. Um and uh, Basil meets Dorian, and, and Dorian basically becomes his, his muse um, because he's just uh, so so good-looking, and he decides he's going to uh, put a lot of effort into making the very best portrait that he's ever made. Mm-hmm. And so the opening scene is uh, Dorian sitting while Basil is painting, and the Lord Henry is talking to them, and they're all sitting in a garden. Mm-hmm. And we have this sort of um, uh, discussion about about art. But actually, before we get into that, maybe we should talk about the, primi- the, the the preface a little bit. Yes. So before we get into the setup of the book, uh, we have a little preface, which is interesting because it's basically just a bunch of quotes um, about art expressing the idea that beauty is important, that uh, beauty is basically just truth, and that art really has no moral purpose except to be beautiful. Uh, Raymond, you have the book there. Do you want to read a couple of quotes from it? Sure, sure. So it opens up with, The artist is the creator of beautiful things. They are the elect to whom beautiful things mean only beauty. Those who find beautiful meanings in beautiful things are the cultivated. For these, there is hope. There is no such thing as a moral or an immoral book. Books are well-written or badly written. That is all. No artist is ever morbid. The artist can express everything. Thought and language are to the artist instruments of an art. When when critics disagree, the artist is in accord with himself. We can forgive a man for making a useful thing as long as he does not admire it. (laughs) 
The only excuse for making a useless thing is that one admires it intensely. All art is quite useless. And I think it's fascinating that, so that was a little excerpted version. Yeah, I took a, I was just reading a couple uh, pithy one-liners. It's just like a long list of one-liners. Yep. Oscar Wilde is kind of a a master of pithy one-liners. That's kind of his thing. Yeah. Well, I love the fact that at the end of that preface, it's signed. It's, he signs it, Oscar Wilde. So it's not, it seems like maybe Oscar Wilde is trying to present something that is in some sense his own philosophy. Um, like a manifesto. Yeah, yeah. An art manifesto. We open with this manifesto of the artist, and it's kind of ironic for us to be Mars Hilling this book at all, because Oscar Wilde opens by letting us know that he thinks all art is quite useless and it doesn't have a moral purpose, and those who try to find meaning um, in beautiful things are missing the point, which of course is part of what we're doing here. Um, so I, I just think it's important to point out before we even go into an interpretation of the work that we are saying Oscar Wilde's work, which he says is meaningless, actually has meaning in spite of himself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oscar Wilde, um, he was a self-proclaimed esthete. Actually, he was a he was Irish, I believe, and uh, he was the top of his class in the classics. He he really cleared the floor with it. And then he met a professor, I think, sometime in his education, grad, undergraduate years, who first influenced him the most, who taught him, who first taught him the idea of making art for art's sake. And to that point, Oscar Wilde was known for um, embodying a Victorian idea known as the dandy. Um, he was always known for wearing, um, you know, he had a very long shock of hair and he had um, a, 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 a flower in his lapel. He was always known for wearing that. And so a dandy is basically, you know, a highly cultivated gentleman. And he's celebrated for the fact that he is so cultivated and useless. In fact, the very fact that he is useless is part of why he is valued. That's what a dandy is. And Oscar Wilde really leaned into that idea. The idea of not only creating art for art's sake, but also being the uh, subject of art. He, he, he really wanted to like live out this, um, this persona of, of a useless, beautiful man, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's really interesting that Oscar Wilde had that philosophy or thought that because he's not entirely wrong, right? There is something that is being pushed back against, which is this medieval idea, honestly, that sort of is still carrying over into this time that useless things that are beautiful really are useless and they're not good. It is not good for something to exist in order to be beautiful and beauty is not inherently good beauty needs to be in service of something else. That beauty is a tool, not an end. And uh, Oscar Wilde doesn't think that's true. And he's right. Um, Beauty isn't just a tool. Beauty is an end in and of itself. And this time didn't always recognize that. So he's right in some sense. And there's something really helpful about this preface in orienting us toward that viewpoint because there's something true in that. Um, it's just also rejecting the idea that beauty goes hand in hand with truth somehow. The, the John Keats quote is, beauty is truth, truth, beauty. That is all you know on earth and all you need to know. The idea that truth and beauty are connected somehow. So Oscar Wilde says they're not. He says that beauty is the only thing 
truth is kind of whatever, <laughs> truth doesn't really exist, all we're after is beauty. The time before him or the time surrounding him said, truth is the only thing, beauty isn't a thing, it's not important, we're only after truth and beauty is a tool to get there. Whereas what we would say is they're interconnected, that you need one to have the other and they're both ends. Goodness, truth, and beauty are all together. They're all important. Right. And another thing we also have to keep into account, take into account here is that it was written in the 1890s, the last decade of the Victorian era, um, which has been categorized by historians as the decadent era. Mm-hmm. Um, it was also, you know, the height of British power. And I think that's such a fascinating idea that, you know, at the height of British power is known as the most decadent time of yeah. British power. So it's a fin de siècle, siècle story. Did I pronounce it right? It's a, it's a French term. Fin de siècle is the end of the century, um, which I think is such an interesting thing about this idea that this huge, like this decadent, immoral book comes out in the ni- 1890s and then in the 1990s Rent came out. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> I feel like there's a pattern here. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Uh, yeah. So we do need to read this book as a, as a sort of end of the century book. Like that's sort of the context. So let, mm-hmm. let's dive into it. Yeah. yeah. So first chapter, we meet our main characters. Uh, we start with meeting um, Basil, who we talked about earlier, and Lord Henry. Basil? Basil? I feel like if it's a name, you say Basil. I'm going to say Basil. We'll go with Basil. I won't dispute this. I'll just accept, you know. Great. Sounds good. <laughs> I don't want... Maybe people will write to us if I pronounce it wrong. Yeah. Uh, so we have Basil, who is the artist, and then Lord Henry. Lord Henry is a snake. <laughs> he's a hedonist snake. Um, I mean that metaphorically. He's not actually a snake. He's a person. Uh, he is a hedonist, which means that he thinks his whole philosophy is that... Um, the highest of all duties is the duty that one owes to oneself. So selfishness is ultimately the highest virtue. And all you are doing in the world, all you are here to do is to pursue pleasure and avoid pain. So suffering is always to be avoided no matter what. Pleasure is always to be sought after no matter what. Um, and that's his whole philosophy. His, that's his morality. And what's so interesting about this is that as we are introduced to Lord Henry, there's a scene going on where Basil is sitting, painting Dorian. Dorian's sitting and listening to Lord Henry. Lord Henry is sort of saying these things that Sophie is saying. Lord, Lord Henry's saying these things to Dorian, um, sort of like whispering it in his ear, so to speak, mm-hmm. while they're in a garden. All right. We already are seeing very clear Genesis parallels here. Yep. Um, Basil doesn't even hear this. Yeah. He's not listening because he's so absorbed in painting Dorian. While at this time, Lord Henry is whispering these things about, you know, how, you know, life is meaningless. Beauty is all that matters. And it's really affecting Dorian. Like he's getting very um, distressed about this. Mm-hmm. And Basil notes when he's when he's a painting. Wow. A really tragic expression kept on your face. Lord Henry, whatever you're saying, keep on saying it, but it, it must be very beautiful uh, because it's really uh, making him look like a better subject in my painting. Um, so there's obviously a very a sort of like strange point going, a little bit of an ironic point going on there. Um, the other interesting thing about Lord Henry is that we don't really know anything about him. Yeah. He has literally no character art. We don't know where he comes from. We don't know why he says the things that he, he says. He never changes. He starts one way. He stays that way. He only influences other people. He is not influenced. Uh, in short, he is literally in this story to be the devil. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he kind of just 
comes out of nowhere and and he I think like a lot of characters but especially Lord Henry here he almost seems like sort of a stand-in for Oscar Wilde's one-liners yes <laughs> like I'm just gonna like cram all of the funny uh, pithy statements I have in the person of Lord Henry yeah yeah and also that's I think that might be a bit of a flaw in Oscar Wilde's writing but also part of his point is that oftentimes I can't really tell the difference between two characters. Mm-hmm. Like when I was reading Dorian Basil and Lord Henry, I don't know who's talking because yeah. they do kind of like all blend together as, as one voice. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so after this, ba- after Dorian is basically catechized into this hedonist philosophy and he hasn't totally subscribed to it yet. He hasn't decided that he agrees with that, but he's also very young. Um, I think he's 28 when the story starts, um, something like that. He's very young. He's really impressionable. And he doesn't say, okay, that's the philosophy I'm going to keep for the rest of my life. But he definitely doesn't reject it. He's like, oh, that's interesting. Um, and well, he... I mean, he says it to the point, and this is where we get, get to the really big part. It, it affects him to the point where he says, I actually, I wish that I could stay young and beautiful and my portrait mm-hmm. could grow old in my place. Yes. And he says, this is very important, he says that he would give up his soul if only he could make that happen. If he could make himself stay young and the portrait is what grows old instead. Um, And everyone, you know, nobody thinks that's actually going to happen, but then what we discover, spoiler alert, uh, as the book continues, is that that promise or that request took, um, that it happened, and that Dorian Gray really did end up giving up his soul in exchange for... Uh, the portrait growing old and then Dorian Gray staying young, which also, because it happens in the presence of Lord Henry, that opens up the possible interpretation that Lord Henry really is the devil, right? That Lord Henry is the one who grants Dorian Gray's wish because he's present when Dorian Gray makes that request of the portrait. Um, Obviously, there's, we don't know whether that's true. That's not confirmed in the book at all, but it's definitely because, you know, it's a garden and here we have the serpent. That might be what's going on. Yeah. And I also think that when I was reading this, what struck me is that this t- technically would be categorized as paranormal. Mm-hmm. Right. But it's not like Edgar Allan Poe. Right. Like, I feel like Edgar Allan Poe, like, set out to write something paranormal. It almost seems like Oscar Wilde just set up to write a story about beautiful art Mm-hmm. And it just ended up being paranormal. Yeah. Because he says this is expressed as like a sentiment. He doesn't actually make a deal with the devil. Mm-hmm. It doesn't actually happen like in Faust where the devil's clearly there. Um, and I guess it's also because Oscar Wilde's just in general sort of moving away from religion or religious imagery to something more like a religion of sentiment. Mm-hmm. So we have this deal that happens unbeknownst to Dory and he doesn't know that the deal actually happens. Um, and pretty quickly after that, we have, uh, a really important plot line, which is that Dorian meets and falls in love with an actress named Sybil Vane. He meets her because he goes to the theater, um, because Lord Henry tells him, you need to be seeking out pleasure and living your life to the fullest. And he says, well, okay, I'll try it. He goes to the theater and he sees this woman who's this wonderful, really good actress. And she's acting, I think in Romeo and Juliet, when he sees her. Uh, He falls in love with her, tells Lord Henry. Lord Henry says, that's great. And then pretty quickly, Dorian gets engaged 
to Sybil. Um, but when he goes to the theater with Lord Henry to see her, uh, she's suddenly really bad. <laughs> she's terrible at acting because she's now, she used to be able to inhabit her characters and really feel what they were feeling because she was escaping outside of herself. But now she's really sincerely in love with Dorian. And so she is being herself and she can't inhabit her other characters. So she's not as good of an actress. Um, but that causes Dorian to fall out of love with her. She, he doesn't love her anymore because what he actually loved was her talent at acting. So he dumps her right then and there and then leaves. Um, and the when he goes back, sort of the closing out of this this little arc here. Wait, hold on. Should, oh, I, should I read this, yeah, this go section for it. right here? Um, Dorian, Dorian, she cried. Before I knew you, acting was the one reality of life. The joy of Beatrice was my joy, and the sorrows of Cordelia were mine also. I believed in everything. You came, oh my beautiful love, and you freed my soul from prison. You taught me what reality really is. Tonight, for the first time in my life, I saw through the hollowness, the sham, the silliness of the empty pageant in which I had always played. My love, my love, Prince Charming, Prince of Life, I have grown sick of shadows. You are more to me than all art can ever be. What do I have to do with puppets of a play? When I came on tonight, I could not understand how it was that everything had gone from me. I thought I was going to be wonderful. I found that I could do nothing. Suddenly it dawned on my soul what it all meant. The knowledge was exquisite to me. What could they know of a love such as ours? You have made me see that. Dorian flung himself down on the sofa and turned away his face. You have killed my love, he muttered. So we what have... are you now? A third-rate actress with a pretty face. Oh. oh. <laughs> and so she's begging. She's on her knees begging and like, I'll change. I'll, I'll be, try to be an actor again. But Dorian cruelly, coldly rejects her. He casts her aside. So we have this really interesting, she loses her taste for art because she has found something in real life that she cares about, that she loves. And he, it turns out, was only ever in love with the art, which is what Lord Henry wanted of him, right? That's what the preface is saying, is that art is everything. Art is the only thing that's meaningful. Um, and you have to be in love with art because there's nothing else to be in love with. It's not reality. It's what we create. Um, and that's not true for Sybil. And so when he rejects her, uh, he finds out, I believe, the next day that she commits suicide because of what he did to her. Well, that's an interesting thing um, because I did, I, I think, wait, you missed the important part of the, the portrait thing, though. Or oh, you... yes, go ahead. Talk about <laughs> that. Oops. Well, okay, so it's interesting because when he goes home, um, he notices that the portrait has changed. And we know that he get the, the portrait gets older. By this point, he hasn't got older. Mm -hmm. What he does notice is that the expression has changed from just a pleasant smile to a cruel smile, which is a very subjective thing. But it's like it's indisputably there. Mm -hmm. his, his, the, the smile has a cruel curl to it. And this actually scares him. He thinks he's going to have some sort of like moral change in him. And he's like, you know what? If this is what's going to happen, if, if I'm going to become cruel or if my acts of cruelty are going to be reflected in this portrait, that actually like convicts him and says, like, well, I got to turn my life around. So he says, well, tomorrow I'm going to go and make it up to Sybil. And then 
he discovers, well, his conclusion at that point is that the face turned cruel because she, uh, he had rejected her. And then he discovers the next day that Sybil had committed suicide. Mm-hmm. And this is where it gets really interesting because at that point, I mean, like he cries for like an hour and then he's like, actually, you know, that's very poetic. Mm-hmm. You know, it's so tragic. It's yeah. wonderful. Um, it's artistic. It's artistic. <laughs> and and um, what is implied there is that, or at least what we, the sort of conclusion that the reader is encouraged to come to is that, Dorian Gray's picture did not change because he rejected Sybil. It reject it, it changed after she committed suicide mm-hmm. at some point at midnight when that happened. Yeah. Um, and that leads Dorian Gray to come to the conclusion that this is kind of destiny, you know, mm-hmm. right? That this is just going to happen to him. And I guess that's where he starts. He basically gives in at that point. Mm-hmm. Um because, it, you know, it, it can't be corrected, I guess, by my action. It has to do something with the with the kind of artistic poetry of the tragedy is what made it happen. Yeah. So, so it becomes almost, yeah, as a sense of, at least in his mind, inevitability. Yeah. And I think it's, uh, it reminds me of uh, Till We Have Faces. There's a really great scene towards the end where the main character, um, Oral, she is drinking because she's having a hard time. (laughs) I don't need to go into the whole plot that leads to this point. But she's going through it, and she starts drinking, and she says about the drinking that actually the reason that people become drunkards isn't because it makes all your sorrows go away. It's because it makes them seem really noble and tragic and sort of artistic. Um... So the real danger, it seems like we're seeing in this scene, the real danger is not in seeing tragedy or in being um, callous to it, in not seeing it as tragedy at all. It's in seeing it as noble or beautiful or artistic in some way, viewing the tragedy or the suffering as, of others as unreal, um, as something that is just part of your perception of the world, of your artistic vision, because then it's all selfish, right? And so this is a journey of Dorian Gray becoming progressively more and more self-oriented and selfish, which really is him becoming more and more focused on uh, art, on his artistic view of the world, which is all wrapped up in this portrait. Which is so interesting because it seems that, like if you look at Oscar Wilde's life, you look at his manifesto at the beginning, it seems that he is actually saying, you know, beauty is everything. Mm-hmm. And yet if you look at the plot, you know, and, the, and kind of like read like what's the message of this story, it doesn't seem that like he's being laudatory of it at all. In fact, the message seems that he's actually condemning it. Dorian does not end up happy no he doesn't and it's also it's not only ends tragically but it's also this kind of worship of art art is kind of mocked too at the same time there's Mm -hmm. a there's a bit of satire and i think it's actually it's quite hilarious i laughed out loud when i read this Uh, but after sybil vane has died basil howard comes to dorian gray's house to um offer his condolences He says, I know what you must be suffering, but where were you? Did you go down and see the girl's mother? For a moment, I thought you of of following following you there. Poor woman, what a state she must be in. And her only child, too. What did she say about it all? My dear Basil, 
How do I know? murmured Dorian Gray, sipping some pale yellow wine from a delicate gold-beaded bubble of Venetian glass and looking <laughs> dreadfully bored. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, like, so over the top, mm-hmm. you know? He's just, like, piling adjectives onto, like, how... It's, like, it's so funny how Oscar Wilde just goes to such lengths to, like... Uh, 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 describe the fact that he's not just sitting in a chair, he's sitting in a luxuriant chair. Right. <laughs> you know? Yep. Yep. I mean, it's it's exaggerated to the point of being ridiculous. Yeah. Um, Which takes us... Oh, actually, one thing I want to point out here, because it becomes important later, plot-wise, Sybil has a brother who we didn't mention, but he appears before, obviously, Sybil commits suicide and when she's still happy and with Dorian... Um, it's after they're engaged, and James is about to leave. He's about to go off. I forget where he's even going, but he's about to leave town for a long time. And he walks with Sybil for a little bit, and he warns her about Dorian and is concerned about Dorian. But she's like, no, don't worry about it. It's all going to be fine. Um, and then so he leaves, but he's still worried about them. Which is an interesting parallel to Laertes in Hamlet, who does the exact same thing. Uh, Ophelia who is Laertes' sister, is has some sort of romantic connection with Hamlet, and Laertes is concerned about that, and so he's about to go back to school in France, but he warns Ophelia about Hamlet. He says, don't. He's a prince. He can't be with you. Stop trying to get with Hamlet. And she says, okay, I'll do what you want. Um, and in this novel, actually, Sybil's death is foreshadowed by the fact that James Vane, who is filling exactly the same role as Laertes in Hamlet, um, he says, if anyone, if, if Dorian hurts you, I'm going to kill him. And then he leaves. And of course, Dorian does lead to her death. Uh, so we have this foreshadowing that James Vane is going to reappear later and cause trouble for Dorian, which of course he does. Well, actually, um, it seems that, but James doesn't actually end up being the uh, the the hand of justice at the end. He doesn't end up no. Killing Dorian. No. Which was interesting. It was actually, it wasn't what I was expecting. Yeah. But similarly to Laertes, right? Laertes comes back, is mad at Hamlet, is mad at everybody, and then doesn't actually end up killing Hamlet at all. So I think James is very much stuck into this story almost exactly as a little Laertes insert. Why? I'm not really sure, but I do think it's interesting. Right, right, right. Um... Well, we, we kind of jumped to the end there, but there's actually like a little bit in the middle where we kind of spend time showing how Dorian Gray is slowly becoming uh, colder and um, uh, or over the years past because he's aging. He's, he gets to the point where he's at least 40. Yeah. Um, there's a bit where he actually explains um, uh, th- there's a whole chapter dedicated to Dorian Gray reading some French novel. Of course, it's a French novel, um, mm-hmm. and and then talking about how much it has affected him, you know. And uh, actually, I don't know if that's the most interesting thing. Uh, and then, well, the the novel is is referred to as the Yellow Book. Oh right, yeah. And the Yellow Book is also sort of a concise uh, exposition of hedonism. So Lord Henry's philosophy about how pleasure is the thing you need to pursue and you need to avoid pain. That's basically the philosophy that is brought forth in this novel that he refers to as the Yellow Book. So this is sort of the fulfillment of 
he's sort of fully adopted Lord Henry's philosophy of hedonism when he reads this book that's sort of like the Bible for hedonism. Yeah, and it says here, It was a novel without a plot and with only one character, being, indeed, simply a psychological study of a certain young Parisian who spent his life trying to realize in the 19th century all the passions and modes of thought that belonged to every century except his own. And to sum up, as it were, in himself the various moods through which the world spirit had ever passed, loving for their mere artificiality those renunciations that men had unwisely called virtue, as much as those natural rebellions that wise men still call sin. Ooh. <laughs> yeah, isn't that interesting? Yeah. Um, again, this is like a, a weird case of the weird paradoxical thing that where it seems that um, Oscar Wilde seems to be um, uninhibitedly, uninhibitedly <laughs> embracing hedonism, beauty as salvific, and yet he seems to have a very serious moral sensibility. Mm-hmm. And he he's very uh, serious and doesn't seem to be saying it in an ironic manner to say that sin is sin. Yeah. Well, it's, it would be strange to have a character like Lord Henry and make him a serpent in the garden if you didn't have some sense that this is the bad guy here. Um, and it's really clear that his influence on Dorian is negative, that it influences Dorian in a bad way, and that Dorian would be happier without it. So it's hard for me, at least, to figure out how much of that is Oscar Wilde really being anti-hedonism or really having some sort of moral struggle with, I think this about art, but also there has to be some sort of moral structure in the world, whether that's really coming out of him or whether this is a compromise between him and his audience that he knows needs to have some sort of moral structure to make the story be okay with the contemporary sensibilities of the time. But I don't really know. Yeah, I don't know either. I mean, he definitely ascribes a lot of power to art. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, he believes in some sense it replaces the power that you could ascribe to Satan earlier, right? Yeah. Uh, which is if you if you put your soul into it, it actually has that the same amount of power. Um, and, and and actually, Dorian Gray seems to acquire some of that power too at the same time. Um, later, Basil Howard is confronting him, and he says he's observing that when Dorian Gray initiates friendships with young men, they all mysteriously die. And mm-hmm. it, I don't think it's saying that he. Um, that 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 uh, Dorian Gray is actually murdering him, uh, murdering these young men. Um, but there is a kind of like a spiritual deal with the devil sort of thing. Like it's bad luck to be friends with Dorian Gray. Yeah. Um, so he does have some kind of strange power that's going on there. Um, and so if you kind of read it on the surface area, you know, it, it does seem to be saying that like, yes, there's a there's a moral dimension to art, right? And that if you if, if you don't acknowledge that, then it can lead to your destruction. But then, at the same time, he also seems to have this kind of message that even uh, evil things can be sort of redeemed if you say it in a very beautiful way. Yeah. You know, if you are a classy villain, <laughs> you know, if you're cool like Darth Vader, then, you know, 
doesn't doesn't matter. He does so maybe he is trying to make evil cool. And maybe by making it cool or making it sort of aesthetic, mm-hmm. um, uh, uh, being a villain in a sort of artistic and tragic way, as as Dorian Gray tries to do, then that kind of like saves himself. It redeems himself. Mm-hmm. So, so, so I guess maybe both could be true. Maybe he is trying to condemn it, but he is also like praising it in a weird way too. Yeah. Like I, 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 you know, it come. What comes to my mind is Dostoevsky's famous line: "Beauty will save the world." Right. Right. And 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 um, I think Dostoevsky was very much, um, very more, much more explicitly Christian in the way that he addressed beauty, especially in his novels. Yeah. But the question is whether, when Dostoevsky said beauty will save the world, did he really mean the same thing as Oscar Wilde? Because I would say that Oscar Wilde probably would agree with that statement, but I'm not sure that he would agree with Dostoevsky. Well, it's interesting that you bring up Dostoevsky because for Dostoevsky, suffering is essential and suffering and beauty go hand in hand. Suffering and beauty cannot be separated from one another. Whereas um, for Oscar Wilde, He's anti-suffering. Yeah. Suffering is bad. Suffering is always bad. And then beauty is the opposite of suffering. Those things are distinct. We get beauty when we don't have suffering. Um, that's even shown in the portrait, right? So over time, as Dorian Gray is aging and doing all these terrible things, he's staying beautiful, and the portrait is what is changing. Um, that the portrait cannot stay beautiful in the midst of the suffering that Dorian is inflicting on others. Uh, the portrait is becoming less beautiful. Suffering is not linked to beauty. Those things are like oil and water. Right. And I think even uh, Lord Henry says at one point, I think after Sybil Vane dies, he says to Dorian Gray, well, don't think about it too much because that would be an ugly thought. You know, mm-hmm. ugly. Don't have any unbecoming thoughts. Yeah. And he and Dorian Gray basically abides by this. To the letter. He's never going to, like, have a thought that's going to be, like, ugly or unbecoming of him, um, which means avoiding the discomfort of confronting every bad thing that he, he he has done. Yeah. I think there's more, there's obviously more that this work is saying about the relationship between art and real life, but I think we should get to the end before we talk about all that, because the final scene tells us a lot about maybe what Oscar Wilde is thinking about the relationship between art and morality and life and all that. Well, there are a couple other things uh, uh, I want to mention before we get to that, um, before we get to the big climax of the of the story. Mm-hmm. And that is like the references to the Bible, I mm-hmm. think, is really interesting. And again, this goes back to the sort of like, um, um, don't think about it too much mm-hmm. sort of thing and be aesthetic about it. Because whenever they quote the Bible, all the characters are like, oh, what was that verse again? You know, yep. Uh, something about what does we gain? How does the quotation go? How does the quotation go? Uh, how what does it gain? Profit a man that he gains the whole world. He mm-hmm. loses his what was it? Ah, soul. <laughs> you know, yeah. <laughs> Almost like the Little Mermaid. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> what do they call them? Oh, feet. Yep. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, that was a, a little bit out of out there <laughs> connection. <laughs> no, I thought the exact same thing. The same? <laughs> okay, good. We're on the same brainwave here. Uh, but anyway. <laughs> Yeah, there's because I think at some point Lord Henry says this at the beginning of the story where he says, um, you know, 
the point of being beautiful is actually to be stupid. The more stupid you are, the more beautiful it is. And that's yeah. a good thing. Mm-hmm. So that he says, that's why I. That's why clergy are so great because they're so, <laughs> which is such a roast. But it's like they're so beautiful because they never think anything. They just you know accept what they've been told. So and then the intellectuals they grow big foreheads and this makes them ugly. So you tend to do that. <laughs> so that that might be kind of Oscar Wilde's attitude towards the Bible is yeah. that like he's willing to accept it as an aesthetic object as long as you don't think about it too much. Well, and only the beautiful parts or the parts that you perceive as being beautiful or artistic, like that you are for Oscar Wilde. I think that you are an actor, an artistic creator, and you are creating the world around you. You are making everything into a tapestry of art and you get to put whatever you want in your tapestry. If you want to put some passages from the Bible in your tapestry, there's no problem with that. That's totally fine. But only what you want. You're taking exactly what you want, and you're taking only the people or the parts of people that you like, and you're putting those things in your tapestry. And there's a very subtle reference here, too, because when um, uh, uh, Howard uh, talks about all the young men who are mysteriously disappeared, Mm -hmm. Uh, he talks about this one, it's such an obscure reference, and we don't know anything about this guy, but he, uh, Howard says, what about Adri- Adrian Singleton and his dreadful end? We don't know who Adrian Singleton is. We don't know what his dreadful end is. Um, but but, but um, Dorian Gray replies, if Adrian Singleton writes his fri- friend's name across a bill, am I his keeper? So he died for, somehow. I don't know what this across the bill means, but... It's obviously a reference to Cain and Abel here. Mm-hmm. Am I my brother's keeper? Um, which I think that, I mean, that just kind of like calls to mind this whole idea of like murder, murdering your brother, which is actually what is going to happen later. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, the, the sin of your, the blood of your brother calls out from beneath the ground, as God says to, to Cain. And that is a haunting image. And it's definitely something that, someone who is a, with a poetic mind might find interesting. Yeah. Um, and so <clears throat> he's talking about these. He's confronting Dorian Gray about this. And Dorian Gray's like, okay, you know what? I'm going to I'm gonna show you what, what actually my soul is actually like. And I'm going to show you the portrait. Basil's like, what's going on? He takes him up. And, you know, there's probably some, like, uh, um, they're probably taking him up to the attic by candlelight. There's probably uh, some some thunder and some, some yep. lightning. And, you know, if you imagine, I, don't, I haven't seen any movies, but I, I imagine if this is a movie, this is what's happening. Yeah. And, and there's, like, the, the, the rain. Okay. To be clear, Raymond has seen movies. He just hasn't seen <laughs> a movie version of this. <laughs> yes, thank you for clarifying. Um, no, yes. I, I do know what a movie is. Uh, so, anyway, he goes... He goes up and he dramatically pulls away the portrait. And then we see the picture of Dorian Gray as an old and bedraggled and evil and totally just warped old man. Yeah. And, of course, Basil Howard is horrified by what he sees. And he tells Dorian Gray, and this is probably the most religiously explicit passage in the book, to repent of his sins. Pray, Dorian, pray, he murmured. What is it that one was taught to say in boyhood? There it is again. Lead <laughs> How did us, it go? How did it go? Lead us not into, into temptation. Forgive us our sins. Wash away our iniquities. Let us say that together. You worshipped yourself too much. We are both punished. Dorian Gray turned slowly around and looked at him with tear-dimmed eyes. It is too late, Basil. Basil, he faltered. It is never too late, Dorian. 
Let us kneel down and try if we cannot remember a prayer. Isn't there a verse somewhere? Though your sin be as scarlet, yet I will make them as white as snow. Those words mean nothing to me now. So I think that opens up a really big dis- discussion about mm-hmm. like redemption, about repentance. Yeah. Um, so is what Dorian Gray saying true? Um, because, I mean, it, it does seem that there is there can be a point of, of no return. There, there can be a point where the, where the door has been shut. I don't know exactly where that point is. Is Dorian Gray at that point? And when he says it's too late for me now, is that is that a true statement? Or I mean, is it is it is it is he is he actually damned at this point? Um, or could you say it's true because he said it was? Right. So I think if it's anything, it's the latter statement that it's true because he says it is. It's definitely not too late for Dorian. Um, but I think the trouble is that he's not going to repent. It's not that he can't. Um, he is not now the sort of person who is going to go back or who is going to ask God for mercy because it would require him to stop focusing on himself <laughs> and he just can't do that. Um, he so actually reminds me... word word can't there. Well, See, that's, can't... A, that's the thing, though. Right? No, but I mean, he's the sort of... He's not the sort of person who's going to. He could, but he's not going... It's like, okay, so in, <laughs> in Paradise Lost, uh, Satan... So Satan gets kicked out of heaven, right? And he is down in the lake of fire and he says, well, I'm going to go mess some things up for the humans. So he goes to the Garden of Eden and he sees how beautiful the garden is and he is really moved and he's really sad because he remembers, it reminds him of what heaven was like. And he thinks for a little bit, and this to me is the most remarkable passage of Paradise Lost, Satan has this really amazing monologue where he thinks, could I go back? Could I repent? And he kind of wants to. But he thinks through it. He does this little thought experiment. He's like, what would it be like if I did? And he realizes if I did, if I went back and if I repented, I would have to submit myself to God. And that's the thing I'm just not going to do. That's not worth it to me. And he knows that he's miserable. He says, which way I fly is hell. I am hell. Um, Myself am hell. He knows that he is never going to be happy. This isn't the best option for him. And he doesn't think it is. He just knows he is unwilling to subject himself to God. He's unwilling to be in submission. And I think that's what's going on with Dorian here. Uh, Dorian made a deal with the devil, basically. And he said, I want this portrait to grow old instead of me. And it happened. And all his sins are reflected in the portrait. And he could go back, but he knows that he would have to submit. He knows that he would have to change. And he knows that he... That's not worth it to him, just like it isn't worth it to Satan. And that's, I think, what's going on in this moment. At this point, he's become very cold. And it actually, so at this scene, at this point, he actually, he murders Basil Howard. Surprise. Surprise. <laughs> um, and so that's actually the only time where we really see a murder happen. So all the other young men who mysteriously disappear, we don't know whether he mur- murdered them or not. Yeah. We know he he's murdered Basil Howard here. This is probably the most gruesome scene uh, in in the uh, the most graphic scene in, in the book. I also do think that it's implied that this is Dorian's first murder because yeah. after he kills Basil, the portrait has a bloody hand, mm, yeah, which seems like the implication is 
the bloody hand is because he has now taken someone's life. Right. And he does get a little bit of a pang of conscience after that, but then he remembers, don't have an unbecoming thought. That's right. And so, and so that is, it's at that point that James Vane catches up on him. Yes. And he gets away with it in the most clever way, in the darkest, most clever way. Um, James Vane says, I'm going to kill you. You look exactly, you have the exact likeness of the person who murdered my sister. Well, not murdered, but tacitly murdered because mm-hmm. she committed suicide because of you. And Dorian Gray is terrified, which is interesting. He's always such a cool person. And yet now he's terrified. I guess he still is afraid of death. Yeah. Then he realizes he can get away with it because he says, pull me into the light. Look at my face. And it's been several years since the death of Sybil Vane. It's been uh, 18 years, 18 right? years. Dorian Gray should be 40 years old. And Basil pulls him into the light and sees the charming face of a young man, barely in his 20s. And, he, and James says, I'm so sorry, my good <laughs> sir. I, uh, that it is, of course, it's impossible that this could actually be the murderer because he would have been much older. And that's how he gets away with it. Which is one of the darkly cruel and sad and kind of funny things about this story is the fact that Dorian is never brought to justice by another human being. No one else is able to catch Dorian in his murdering Basil or um, in what he did to Sybil. Nobody else is able to get Dorian for those things. Ultimately, the one who brings Dorian into the light or shows Dorian's soul to everyone for what it really is is himself in the final scene, which we'll get to in just a moment. Yeah, well, I mean, I guess... We oh, we're can... here, okay. We are here, yeah. <laughs> I don't know, I don't, yeah, I don't have any other thoughts. <laughs> I said that like I was introducing a commercial <laughs> There is no commercial break. It is time now to talk about the final scene. I mean, we could talk about our podcast, Unreliable Narrators. Follow Sto- us on Instagram. Stoa uh, at gmail.com. Okay, That's right. all right, and we're back. Okay, so the final scene, Dorian... After all this has happened, after James came after him, he actually confesses to Lord Henry that he murdered Basil in kind of a weird roundabout way. Um, That's the scene where Lord Henry asks the the quote we were talking about earlier, which is, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose, how does the quotation go? His own soul. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And that freaks Dorian out a little bit because he realizes, you know, he's lost his own soul. He knows what he did. And... Uh, In the final scene, which is really, really, really powerful, the first time I read these last three pages, I got to the end of the last paragraph, stared at the book with my mouth open for a few seconds, and promptly turned back three pages and read them again, because I was like, there's no way that's what just happened. (laughs) Um, Well, what was it about that was so shocking to you? The, when they come in, well, let me describe it and then I'll say what it was. So, Dorian, in a fit of passion because he can't stand it anymore, um, takes a knife and he stabs his own portrait, the portrait that has become ugly and deformed and old. And when they come in and find him, they find him, they find a dead, warped, ugly, uh, evil old man on, dead on the ground. And the portrait is young and beautiful and what Dorian Gray was. So they switch places. The portrait is fine. Nothing happens to the portrait. It's Dorian who stabs himself. And that's what got... I did not see that coming. <laughs> that they were going to switch. Oh, uh, re- really? Yeah, I didn't see it. Because... I was I, also I, like 12. Okay. <laughs> because, <laughs> I mean, 
it did seem to be to be rather logical. Like, I mean, how else is it going to end? Really, if you think about it, how else is it going to end? I don't know. I didn't see it coming. <laughs> I was little. I don't know if I, I, I guess I don't know if I saw it coming or not. Um, but it did seem to be, well, poetic. Yeah. <laughs> you know? True. It made, it made sense. And also, we don't really know whether, quote unquote, what really happened is that Dorian Gray stabbed himself. We know, like, could oh, there well, be something else going on? Like, he stabbed, like, some kind of magical transfer that happens. He that's stabs what the I portrait. assumed was happening. I assumed that he stabs the portrait, but in stabbing the portrait, he's stabbing his own soul, which means that he's killing himself. But yeah. he's not turning the knife in towards himself. He's stabbing a portrait, not knowing that he is killing himself in doing that. Right. Is how I interpreted it. Yeah, no, that's how I interpreted it, too. Great, we're on the same page. <laughs> yeah, 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 but wait, does it, when they come in, does he have this, the, the knife in himself? Or? Uh, let's look at it again. I don't remember. Uh, let's see. I know the portrait is untouched. The portrait does not appear to have been stabbed at all. When they entered, they found hanging upon the wall a splendid portrait of their master as they had last seen him in all the wonder of his exquisite youth and beauty. Lying on the floor was a dead man in evening dress with a knife in his heart. He was withered, wrinkled, and of loathsome, and loathsome of visage. It was not until they examined the rings that they recognized who it was. Okay, so he does have a knife in his heart. Yeah, but I think I still think that, that there's agree. a bit of a magical thing going on there. Yes, I agree, I agree. Um, so here at the end, we kind of go back to this question of what's the relationship between art and the real world. Um, And I think one really clear thesis, so, you know, whether or not we say Oscar Wilde really believes the hedonist manifesto of Lord Henry, whether he really thinks art is everything and beauty is everything and nothing else matters and useless things are the only good things um, and that art is useless and that there's no moral interpretation of it, whatever. Whether he believes that or whether he believes the more moral interpretation um, that there actually is that the hedonist lifestyle is not good for you and that there is a moral compass in the world. Whichever one of those things he believes, at the very least, the, the current that runs through all of it is that art is a reflection of the real world and you can't hide the real world in art and conceal it somehow. <laughs> you can't hide yourself in your art. Um, I think in the preface, one of the quotes is, uh, the artist uh, reveals art and conceals the artist, conceals himself. But the, in lots of ways, the thesis of this story is that you can't do that. You can't hide yourself in your art. You can't hide the real world in art because sooner or later it's going to come out. That there's a connection. It's like the mind-body connection. There's a world-art connection, <laughs> art and real-life connection, um, where you can't take something and stick it in art and think, okay, well, that's gone now. That's done away with. I think maybe a way of, um, I don't know, like, whether this is a good analogy, but it's sort of like um, when uh, kids who are school shooters or who shoot up a school will often draw really gruesome pictures of their dead classmates and things like that before they ever actually do the shooting. And I'm sure that in lots of cases, it's them trying to channel or trying to purge out those emotions by hiding it in art or putting it in artwork. But I think that's sort of a Dorian Gray moment. You can't hide those emotions by, I'm just going to kind of 
catharsis them out through art <laughs> and then get rid of them. Um, putting them in art doesn't make them go away. Yeah, I was definitely thinking like the end of the story is definitely just kind of like a catharsis thing. I mm-hmm. think personally for Oscar Wilde, and you can understand why someone would make this this picture, this picture of Dorian Gray is, um, I think, immediately understandable to everyone. And it's like the fantasy is like, mm-hmm. what if you could take everything that was wrong with you in a portrait and then just stab it? And it's like, that's the cathartic reaction. It's like, you could just, if everything was wrong with you, could be represented in this one thing and you could just destroy it and then you could just fix it, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, And, and actually it's, it's very much like Fight Club. I don't know if you've seen Fight Club. It also came out in the nineties, but the end of the story of the Fight Club, and I'm not, don't care if I spoil this because you shouldn't watch this movie anyway, kids. <laughs> um, I'm going to plug my ears because I haven't heard it. I haven't seen it, but you can talk you about it. You want to see it? Go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> really? Okay. Well, well uh, the, there's a plot twist when he discovers that um, uh, 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 the protagonist, his um, alter ego, is actually himself. And then he shoots himself in the head and half his brains go out and then his alter ego dies. And then the entire... So, okay, I'm done talking now. <laughs> Are you done? Yes. Okay. Did you hear it? No. Okay. <laughs> um, but anyway, it's also a killing. Uh, 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 it's a similar thing. Okay. I guess it will say. <laughs> Got it. To the end of Doria Gray. <laughs> Perfect. Um, and it's also a cathartic thing where, you know, and I don't know if I would say, like, this is a truly redemptive thing. I mean, because. You look at, like, the gospel story, and it is a cathartic story. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, does catharsis necessarily mean redemption? We get catharsis from Aristotle, right? Um, So, like, maybe we should define that. Like, what is catharsis? We know redemption is catharsis. Does that make it redemptive? Does that make this story redemptive? I mean, for sure it's cathartic. Like, Aristotle's whole idea of catharsis is it's the purging of emotions through pity and fear. And we definitely feel pity and fear at the end of this story, and it definitely feels sort of purging. Negative emotions are being purged out, I guess, if we're going to go with Aristotle's idea of catharsis. Um, in terms of it being redemptive, I think that that is open to interpretation. I think that there are a couple different ways to view the end of this story. I think one way to view it is that Dorian doesn't really change and that he still thinks that he can hide his sins. That it's sort of a be sure your sins will find you out kind of message Mm -hmm. where he thinks that he can just destroy the portrait and then I don't know what he thinks is going to happen after that, (laughs) but that he can destroy the portrait and no one else is ever going to see it and no one will ever see his soul as it really is. And it turns out that that's not true, that he can't take everything that's wrong with him and stick it in a picture and just boom, destroy it. And then it's gone. Um, But that he actually in doing that destroys himself because he is those sins. Those sins are part of him. And that's a pretty grim idea, right? That he somehow can't be redeemed because his sins are linked to him um, and he can't undo that. So I guess you could say that even if this isn't a, a, um, a, a, a book that's redemptive, it's not theologically inaccurate mm-hmm. because the sins have to go somewhere. You yeah. know? It's like you would think that like there has to be some kind of like substitutionary sacrifice to all the sins to get placed on on some figure, some person who is able to take it to the grave mm-hmm. and then come back and not take the sins with you. Well, I right? think that's De- the sad thing is that the person who took Dorian Gray's sins could have been Christ 
but it was Dorian. And that Dorian knew... That's why it didn't work. Yeah, that Dorian knew that there was... That someone had to suffer for his sins. And he stabs his own portrait because he knows that someone has to suffer for his sins. And in this, in his story, it's him. He dies for his sins. But it could have been Christ and it wasn't. And he had a chance to make that happen. And he didn't do it. He didn't take it. But I do think the other way to read this ending, I will say, that is a little bit more redemptive. I think you can interpret the last scene as an act of repentance. Because his sins, you could say grieve him so much in the end that he does, because he does have some pangs of conscience the whole time, even if he is really corrupted by Lord Henry and if he has the wrong view of the world and the wrong philosophy. Um, I think you could say that he is eventually overcome by, in his conscience, the sins that he committed, and that in stabbing the portrait, he actually is repenting, because it's his sins that he wants to destroy even if he's going about it the wrong way. So I think you could say that maybe, maybe, uh, that was an act of repentance. Um, I don't know how much evidence there is for that, and I think it's very open to interpretation. We don't really know. The book doesn't give us enough information to know what he's thinking when he stabs the portrait. But if we read it that way, that's a little bit more redemptive for Dorian. I have a question for you. I I want to know what you think about this. But, you know, like... Back back in Victorian England, when they you know were prisoners were waiting for their their under death sentence, waiting for their uh, punishment to be hanged, um, it was custom for a priest to come in, right? Mm-hmm. And you could repent. Yeah. And if you repented, though, that's uh, this is such an interesting thing. When you repented, like you could get absolution, but that doesn't didn't let you off the hook, right? Uh, I mean, you still had to go mm-hmm. be executed. So. I think that's a really interesting idea. It's a sort of uh, state of mind that I think that we just don't really have anymore in our current justice system. Yeah. Um, because we've just become very confused about at least what justice is. And I mean, I'm not sure whether I know enough about Victorian England to say whether I would have like approved of that state of mind or not. Yeah. But it's a very interesting idea to me um, that like, okay, um, you can be saved, your soul can be saved, you can repent of your sins, but the law is the law. You still have to be punished for it. Yeah. Um, and so I guess maybe you could think about, like, that's the second interpretation, the more mm-hmm. redemptive way, is that, like, he repented and yet he still has to pay for it. He still has to die. Yeah. We don't know. We don't know. <laughs> so write to us. And tell us what you think. Tell us the answer. (laughs) Uh, Thanks for listening, everybody. We will see you next time. See you next time. You've been listening to Unreliable Narrators, a Mars Hill podcast. Unreliable Narrators is an original podcast produced by STOA alumni. You can subscribe to our podcast wherever podcasts can be found. If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit our website at unreliablenarratorspodcast.wordpress.com or write to us at unreliablenarratorsstoa at gmail.com. This podcast is produced by Raymond Dokopil and Sophie Klomperens. And our theme song is New Moon by Caleb Klomperens. And our next episode, we're going to talk about Bruno. Until then, friends, make great art. Just don't make it too good. I know you can see something inside The one part of me that I cannot hide And maybe it's true that nothing is new I can see so much
the sun. Oh.